How about you, Mike? Do you do you nap, or is that antithetical to your? Mike's asleep right now. <laughs> Man, uh, you ruined it. I was planning on doing anything this entire conversation and just hoping you, you would you would carry it, so I could nap. I'm Mike Leffer. And I'm Mike Ravenscroft. And you're listening to Extreme Uncertainty, the Timing the Market episode. Mr. Ravenscroft. Mr. Leffer. I'm really excited about this episode today because of one of the topics that our guest talks about. And um, it's also critically important, not just from a founder's perspective, it's also important as an investor. And that topic is timing the market. Uh, Do you know what I mean when I say timing the market? Oh, sure. Yeah. In some ways, I think it's like the thing that's most out of a founder's hands. Yeah, I've heard it's like um, the analogy I've heard it described is like surfing. So it's all about catching this big, big wave of technological innovation, regulative, regulatory innovation, something in consumer demands that if you launch your product and start the company at the exact right time. Yeah, it's surfing the wave. It's knowing when to get up on the board, right? Because if the way, because I think that, you know, I, I and I, I heard a VC talk about this a long time ago, um, but uh, he said that I, I don't believe in, um, in making markets, um, you, you ride markets. And I think there, you know, there are ways to read that and there, you know, you can certainly disagree with that. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, if you think about any of the sort of disruptive businesses that look like they make made a market in the last, you know, couple of decades, um, there, there's sort of a bigger shift that's happening beneath them that, um, you know, some of it's in their control and some of it's uh, very much out of their control. So I think the surfing analogies is very good, especially if you, uh, you know, bitten by a shark or <laughs> if you get stuck in the undertow. <laughs> What's awesome about today's episode is that the founder did not get bitten by a shark or uh, at least a big shark. <laughs> at least it didn't come in up the in the undertow. conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is the, the first entrepreneur with a successful exit on the show. So without further ado, uh, excited to announce our guest today, Chandler Givens currently the director of product management for consumer privacy at Avast, which is a four and a half billion dollar multinational cybersecurity corporation. And prior to that role, he was the co-founder and CEO of TrackOff, which is a Baltimore-based cybersecurity company that builds tools to protect users' identities and personal lives. Their mission is to empower people to reclaim control of their data. Please enjoy our interview with Chandler. Chandler, really appreciate you having on Extreme Uncertainty today and uh, really, really excited for this conversation because you're not only doing really cool things, helping people reclaim control of their data, but you're also the first entrepreneur with a successful exit we're having on the show. Well, it's my pleasure to be here and I'm honored to be the first exit guy on the show too. (laughs) <laughs> we'll have we'll have a chime or some kind of like happy emoji sound. Yeah, right, right. Uh-huh. So to kick things off, just ask the typical question, what does TrackOff do? TrackOff 
Well, maybe I should back up a little bit and say just for the listeners that TrackOff was the startup that I was the co-founder and CEO of um, headquartered in Baltimore, Maryland. We were acquired in May of 2019. So I now work for a firm called Avast, which is the largest consumer cybersecurity company in the world. Um, but TrackOff still exists today, although we'll be absorbed into Avast um, at some point in the future. But TrackOff itself is a product that's dedicated basically to um, helping users protect themselves from the newest types of online tracking. So the easiest way to think about it is like this. You know, we started the company. We, we understood very clearly there's a trend line that people are becoming more and more concerned about their privacy. And I think we could talk more about that. But within that, if you look back uh, at the history of online tracking, the primary mode of, of keeping tabs on people's behavior online had been based on the browser cookie, which you guys are sure are familiar with. And that had started around 1993. And so when we set out to start the company in 2015, the idea was yeah, the, the cookie at some point has to become deprecated. And they're already seeing, you're seeing signs at that point of new types of tracking that were different than the, the cookie, more persistent in ways, and also more sinister in a lot of ways. And so um, that product itself, track off the flagship product was dedicated to stopping a new form of tracking, which is called device fingerprinting, which you can talk about. So long story short, it's um, anti-tracking technology, basically. So, so, so just briefly talk about uh, what you were going to say there, um, device fingerprinting. What, what does that mean? Yeah, so the, the issue with cookies is that people have become wiser since 1993 and more aware of the invasions to their privacy. So people are either themselves clearing their cookies or they're using a third-party product to get rid of their cookies. And the issue with that is for third-party trackers, meaning advertisers, analytics firms, is that it severs a session of tracking for them. So I'll just make it very easy to understand. If you visit uh, thewallstreetjournal.com and then you visit ESPN.com and then the NewYorkTimes.com, um, and each of those sites are using the same third-party analytics firm on the page, then they can follow you from site to site to site. But if you were to go just to Wall Street Journal and then remove your cookies and go to ESPN, in theory, then you shouldn't be tracked between those sites and severs a connection. What device fingerprinting does is it looks at attributes associated with your device, whether it's mobile, your laptop, your desktop, and links them to some PII. So I'll make it simpler. You can, you can ascertain certain information about someone's device just when you hit a website. So there's information that's transmitted up to the web server that you can grab. That what you find can be statistically significant in a very large pool. And you associate that information in some way with that person's identity. And so you ask the next question, which is, how would you associate that information? Here's how you would do it. One way is you can do it via email. So if you receive an email, the analytics company can see that you've opened the email and grab some of that same information and associate it with you. So you have now information that says, you know, Chandler is on Chrome, he's on a Dell laptop, um, he's in this location based on his IP, here's some information about the browser he uses, here's some information about his hardware, and that then is linked to your identity. 
So over time, that profile grows and grows and grows. And they start to know that every time they see this device or that device, there's a high probability that it's this person or that person. So over time, and this is, this is the case now for almost everyone, um, when you go to a website, even without logging in, they have a good sense of who you are just based on that device without you ever logging into an account. And so Chandler, I, I promise I don't do anything bad online. Why, why, why does this matter? Yeah, it, you know, there's a lot of good one-liners that I don't have teed up right now about why you should care about your privacy, even if you're not doing anything wrong. Of course, I can't think of them right off the top of my head. But look, the, the issue is not that you either are someone doing something wrong, therefore have something to hide or not. The issue is that people have absolutely no control at this point of their personal information. And so the, the notion is that you should have the right to be able to control where that inf- where your information goes whenever you want it. To. So you should be private when you want, where you want is the thesis basically. And, you know, I've actually had this debate with a lot of people. I remember when we were doing a round of financing, we we're in a meeting with a guy and you get this a lot around the beltway who was ex, um, he was either a defense contractor or worked for the government, but he said, look, you know, what you guys are doing here is going to run counter to a lot of things that law enforcement need to catch bad guys, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, look, the truth is there are trade-offs you have to make. And it is true that um, there are dangers that come with total anonymity uh, and, the, and the prohibition on allowing certain authorities to be able to, to identify individuals. However, the, the thrust of what we were always saying at Trackoff was that, and I still say this now, things have swung so far in the opposite direction that it's not even time to begin having this conversation of, is, is it, are we going to be thwarting the ability for the authorities to identify an individual? We're just not even close to that point yet because there's so many ways to track people. And, um, you know, an interesting anecdote about this. One of the reasons that we started track off was that I used to work as a privacy and technology attorney in Chicago and it's interesting when I was in law school, I was in one of the first classes that's called cyberspace and law. And now these types of classes are offered at every law school across the country. Uh, But there was not a big body of jurisprudence about privacy law, meaning there weren't a lot of lawsuits that you could read about or case law you could read about. Uh, And if you looked at a graph though, you could see there actually was a, a trickle of lawsuits that started being filed around the late nineties about invasions of privacy. There's some famous cases against Firms like DoubleClick, which really acquired by Google early in the advertising game. And then all of a sudden it stops after 2001. And it's just very quiet for a long time. And what you're seeing there is representation of the paradigm shift after 9-11, right? All of a sudden privacy became just an afterthought because we're so concerned about security. And you can understand why that is. But then after about 10 years, 2010, 2011, you started to see a slow uptick of types of litigation where consumers were suing or companies were suing about exploitation of their data. And then by 2015, when we started the company, if you were using case law as a trend line, it was starting to explode. Um, And so I'm not sure where I started at that point, but the anecdote's over. So whatever your next question, (laughs) whatever your next question is. And and how, I mean, this is fascinating. How did you decide to go from litigation and law to starting a tech company? I think it was a, it's a pretty common founder story, actually, which is, 
I was working in one vector here. So I'm, I'm working in privacy technology law. And like I just described, you can see this trend line. So unless you weren't paying attention and stepping back and looking at it, you might've missed it. But it was very clear to me, like, wait a minute, there's exponential growth in the amount of lawsuits that are being filed by individuals because they're upset that their privacy is being violated. So there's something is going on there. Um, and then within that, again, going back to the top of this discussion, you start looking at, okay, well, what are the most popular ways that people's information is being collected right now? And where do we think this is going? And I, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that we, we were right on target with that, meaning that we, we looked around and a lot of it was looking through academic white papers, reviewing industry literature and understanding more that, okay, people think device fingerprinting is where modern tracking is going. Um, and then identifying, okay, how can you address this? What's a technical solution to address this? And so 2015, we launched, if you look now, every web browser has built in anti-fingerprinting functionality. There's tons of third-party products that are, are starting to offer it. So we, the timing was right there, but it was really just, again, kind of seeing this larger trend line and understanding that there is a need there and the need's going to continue growing. Well, so just to sort of like... Get, uh, get a little bit more personal, I guess, on, on that. So, you know, being a lawyer, I've, I've heard pretty, pretty good position to have pretty good pay. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, you know, one of the questions we tend to ask entrepreneurs is sort of, you know, how you go from having a, um, you know, a very nice lifestyle to something that, you know, you know, is not going to be glamorous right away. I mean, right, you, you, you're working for nothing to start when you raise venture, you're working for a little bit, a little bit more than nothing. Um, you know, and then, you know, so, sort of the, the company has to take off very quickly. Um, so, you know, I'm just curious sort of about that, like jumping off point, like, was there just a, a point where you realized like, this market is is really ready. If I don't do it, somebody else is going to. Um, and I'm just curious, like, did you meet a co-founder at that time who sort of had the same vision and like what that sort of process was like? It's funny, before this conversation earlier in the day, I was listening to this podcast, some old episodes, and I listened to, again, the episode with Nick Culbertson. So for your listeners, the, the CEO of Pro Tennis, and you should go back and listen to that podcast too, because it's really excellent trying to steal some of his, his wisdom. And Nick's a friend of mine. I'm, I'm a big admirer of him and his work. But I was thinking, you know, you listen to that podcast and everyone's the hero in their own story. You know, you can deny that, but you are. You're always the hero in your story. But you listen to Nick's podcast and it's like, oh, I was a Green Beret and then I went to Hopkins Med School. Then I just started this fur. You know, it's like, oh, I, I was reading odyssey and like propelled into a burning building and that's how i got the idea it's like you know it's, it's really, you're like come on nick save some of the save some of the accolades for the rest of us but yeah so i was so i was an attorney i did have a very good job i worked for a great firm in chicago uh called edelson which is it's kind of a boutique firm but they are they are considered to be the the premier uh plain aside uh, litigation firm when it comes to privacy and technology in the country and so i was super fortunate like most um, founders, I think, uh, who have any measure of success. I was super lucky to have a wonderful mentor there, the, the managing partner of that firm and founder of the firm, Jay Ellison, who was an excellent, excellent negotiator and just had really um, a really deep thinker in a lot of ways. So he kind of took me under his wing and I was exposed to a lot of things at an early age that I probably shouldn't have been, um, but it just threw me into the, into the fight and it was really a it was really interesting, exciting experience. I benefited to your question. I benefited from the fact that I was young. 
uh, and single. So when I, when we started track off, I was 29 and single. So I did do some sort of mental calculus where I thought, you know, I do have this really great job on a good track. Uh, like to your point, yes, I was making good money. Um, and it is hard to give that up, you know, even if you're an, an idealist, but, uh, I kind of thought given my risk tolerance, I wasn't sure if I would ever do it if I didn't do it before I was in my thirties, you know, for whatever that's worth. I know that's silly. Um, so I kind of got to this point where and I've told others this, I felt almost I'd wake up in the morning, my blood would be boiling. Like I, I had this just free floating, horrible anxiety that I, I know that I really felt strongly that this thing would be successful if we started this company. Um, and it just, it, it consumed me. And so I, at some point I thought, you know, I've got to get this monkey off my back or else I'm never going to be able to forgive myself for not doing it. So for me, it was kind of an easy decision in that regard. Um, and to your other question about like my co-founder, my co-founder, I'm really lucky there too, is a good friend of mine from undergrad. We both went to Virginia Tech. So we've been friends for a very long time. We kept in close touch. He was a software engineer at North Grumman, uh, working on some very interesting uh, space and cyber defense work, which you can't really talk about because it's super secret stuff, but really smart guy, super hardworking. So in, in terms of founder risk, uh, I think both of us, I, I can't speak for him, but I, I feel very fortunate in that regard too. What was the highlight of the journey from when you started to when you got the acquisition offer? I was watching, um, did you guys watch The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary? I'm in no way comparing anything to what I'm doing with Michael Jordan at all, but he said something of that which really resonated with me, which was after he'd won one of the championships, um, he said the feeling he had was it was more relief than joy, you know, which is really weird to think about. When we exited, it really wasn't – people always ask, well, what did you do? Did you guys go out and it was like champagne and you're out all night smoking cigars? Like we – I went and like toddled to bed at like 8 PM the day the deal was done. And then I didn't really get up for like four days. And I was, I mean, I was so exhausted and really not much joy at all. It's just kind of like relief that the thing's done. And the reason I think as I've reflected back on it, it's been over a year and a half now is one is you're so consumed by the day to day of running a business that there's little time to kind of have any perspective on things. And the other is when you bootstrap like we did uh, for over a year, um, and started generating revenue in year one. It's like someone, you know, shoots the gun at the beginning of a race. As soon as you make dollar one, the clock starts ticking. And as you guys well know, because you live and breathe this every day, at that point, you're just looking at if, if our plan is to exit within you know, two to five years, then we have to keep the growth going at a constant state. And so it's just this frenetic pace of, of play where you are, it's just all consuming and exhausting. Um, and so I look back at the time, it's almost like, you know, when you're, you know, when you're, you get older, you look at the thing you do when like you're a teenager, like maybe you and your friends, I don't know, you know, uh, ran from the police or like, you know, crossed an interstate and almost got hit by a semi truck. And it was really funny at that time. Like fun. And then you look back like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe we did that. That, you know, that's so crazy. There's some of that feeling looking at a startup because you're going, statistically, you know, you're going to fail. And a lot of the things you do, the bets you make that either paid off or didn't pay off, you're like, man, that could have really gone a different way. And so some of the times to actually answer your question, Mike, so, some of the times I look back on her is thinking through some of the bets we made that paid off um, at certain decision points and going like, man, I'm really glad we did that. Or that was a really interesting 
you know, intellectually an interesting thing we did there, even if we weren't exactly sure why we did it at the time. You know, I remember, um, I'm kind of all over the place here, but I'll try to bring it together. When we started the company, our thesis was that we were going to be a pure play direct consumer company. Um, we had set budget, and again, it's all bootstrapped to run kind of traditional digital advertising, Google ads, Bing ads, you know, Gemini, Yahoo ads. Um, and we thought we had enough data suggesting people cared about the privacy. So we're going to build this thing. They will come. They're going to click through these ads. We'll, we'll somehow find a decent ratio where we can get the positive ROI through digital ads. And we did six months of dev, turned on this advertising apparatus we stood up ourselves and it was just crickets. I mean, nothing happened, you know. Um, we were spending, I call it $6,000 a month, uh, which I know is an earth shattering money, but for us it was because you're burning through your savings um, and making maybe, you know, 500 bucks on that. And there are no signs that things are going to change. And we had a really good bit of luck in that we got some local uh, PR, so earned media from the NBC affiliate in Baltimore. And the woman, Megan Pringle, who's on there, who's a reporter who I'll forever be indebted to because they put us on. And I'll, I'll tell you some good inside baseball here. Here's a funny story. So we, we called them up to the of the startup, you know, this is what we're working on. <clears throat> it's very topical. We think your, uh, your uh, viewers will like it. So we said, okay, sure. We'll come to your office. Well, we're working out of my row home in Fells Point. <laughs> so we had no office. So we rented, we rented a Regis uh, in downtown Baltimore, you know, Regis virtual office. And uh, it was just myself, my co-founder, Ryan, fuck. And, so this, the crew comes to the Regis and there's a sweeping views of the Harbor in downtown Baltimore. And, um, and I told the, the woman who worked there in the front at Regis at the beginning, like, okay, look, if they come here, just, if you would, I'd really appreciate it. If you just seemed like we're all familiar, you know, <laughs> I'm not asking you to lie here. So just because I was even there. And so she, they come up to our office and like, Oh, wow, this is a great office. Like, yeah, you know, we take our meetings here. Uh, this office downtown. Anyway, long story short, we did this segment all about online tracking and about the product and they ran it in Baltimore, which in of itself was great, but it got picked up and nationally syndicated. So we were watching the Google analytics when the piece ran. And then all of a sudden we could see it move from Baltimore to New York, then back down the coast, then moving from East to West, all the way up to the Pacific Northwest. And it ran on like every single NBC affiliate in the country. And so that's how we got, you know, our first huge segment of paid users. There was a lot of really positive feedback to it. And most importantly, we started getting a lot of calls from resellers, you know, people that own companies that in whatever shape or size were servicing a bunch of customers and helping them with security problems, computer problems. So they would offer them you know, wholesale licenses of things like Norton antivirus. And they'd gotten to a point where they were looking for new tools for their customers to offer privacy protection. So once we started getting those calls, that led to a series of events uh, that got us into the business of reselling our licenses keys to other parties. So we became more of a B2B to C startup. Um, and eventually we started sub-licensing our technology to bigger firms. So that's how we started partnering with companies like Avast, which eventually acquired us. 
uh, is that some of the larger cybersecurity firms are looking for new and interesting technology in that space. And we would do BD deals with them where basically we'd get some revenue share um, for every user that they acquired through technology that we built out. So <clears throat> anyway, I'll answer the last thing I'll answer is you said, what's a, what's a cool thing you think about? One is obviously the, the people that you get to work with. I think one of the coolest things about starting a startup is that you get to choose who you hang out with every day. You know, I mean, it's just a wonderful thing to be able to go to work every day and being around people that really energize you, um, that are really motivated about submission and you're all just working you know, like dogs to see this thing be successful. So that, that's really what I look back most fondly on is just hanging out with, with colleagues. In terms of like a cool story, the one coolest story I have about the startup is we got to go to meet with Apple and Cupertino on a BD deal. And that's just one of those experiences, whether you're an Apple fanboy or you hate Apple, going to Cupertino to their new offices there, it feels like you're walking into like a black mirror, like futuristic <laughs> type TV show. And it was just a really, to go from where we started in 15 to meeting with Apple in 2019 is when we went. It was really quite, you know, that was a moment where you kind of paused and like, holy shit, how do we get here? <laughs> so there are so many questions I want to ask you about that. Um, no, 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 about that, about that earn media bit. Cause um, it, it's in some ways it's like the most old school kind of like, um, scaling story it's i mean it's like you, you were seen on the news and somebody saw you on the news i mean it's just that you don't rarely hear about that happening in in the era of seo and uh you know all the all the display ads and everything like that so um that's really it's really a funny story um so so just to sort of hop back a little bit so you start to get this you get this earned media crush um you start to see that you're you, in some ways you're you're proving out your hypothesis that people are caring about this and so I'm sure that was very validating, right? So like all over the country, people are starting to like um, get on the platform. So what gets you from there? What's, if you could just sort of elaborate a little bit on the in-between between there and Apple. So you said that um, you, you started to have businesses um, pick you guys up because they wanted new products to resell. I'm just sort of curious, what you, from your perspective, what the gap was that you guys were filling? Because going B2C is obviously a very risky move. Um, you know, you guys aren't exactly a cybersecurity company, but, you know, a lot of the similar sort of attributes of a cybersecurity company. And, and everybody knows that that's extremely challenging, right? Because consumer cyber is, is, is tough. So, um, and consumer data privacy. So I'm just sort of curious, in that in-between period, what happened that helped you guys get to that kind of B2B scale or B2B2C? Um, and sort of like what that evolution looked like? Yeah, we found, so... We found pretty quickly, and I should clean up the record by saying, we didn't totally stop going direct-to-consumer. We always had a slow trickle of direct-to-consumer going. We just realized that, like a lot of companies, <clears throat> the customer acquisition costs were untenable for us um, until, we, until we got to a point where we felt we could raise a lot of money to dump fuel onto that fire. And with the, with the reseller business, like, like a lot of other companies, we really just had to stack successes on top of each other to get into the room with these different uh, vendors. So when we started off resellers, when I say resellers, I mean as small as you know, John's computer shop in Annapolis, Maryland, we would take on as a client. And they might have 100 different customers, and they would pay us for um, bulk licenses for their users. But over time, we got bigger and bigger resellers <clears throat> to the point where Someone asked us, can you give us a box? You guys are going to laugh at this. Do you have a box 
that we could provide in our store somewhere so that customers can come in and see that they can get track off from us. And in our head, we're thinking, you know, who the hell is going to buy software at a brick and mortar store? But it was a good customer who said, okay, fine. We had a great designer we were working with. We, we had a box made. And once we had this box made, we were thinking, okay, well, um, where else can we take this? This is such a strange story in this age, but you know, where can we take this kind of physical presence product and distribute it? And at some point we're like, best, you know, best buy. That's gotta be a good, that's gotta still be a good retail. Yeah. And just to just to clarify, when you say a box, you mean like a CD ROM? Like I mean like a CD ROM box, a jewel box. But you know, but I mean the trick now is there's never any CD in there. It's just usually like a piece of paper. But there is still a contingent of customers that really want to have a physical box in their hand. The, the point is that we started thinking like, well, you know, why not us in, in Best Buy or Walmart? You know, there still seems to be a fair amount of foot traffic there. But we were still too early to get to that point. And I think it was in the back of our heads at some point when we got to get there because I, we knew that it would give us um, so much legitimacy when we started doing bigger BD deals. So we just kind of thought like, if we could just get in Best Buy, we can say we're in Best Buy and that automatically gets us into some other meeting. There was one intermediate stage between there. And this is another bit of luck. And it goes back to my point earlier about you kind of think back about moments and go, oh my God, I can't believe that we did that or we throw that needle. But we were put in contact with a guy who was the president of a company uh, based out of Northern Virginia, actually called Threat Track. And he was a Virginia Tech guy. I'm a Virginia Tech guy. My co-founder is a Virginia Tech guy. And we just started, you know, chewing the fat with him one day about a business and what we thought we should do. And he said, you know, we can't do a business. We can't do anything with you guys because you're too small. But we do these once a year um, promotions on the Home Shopping Network. Do you know what the Home Shopping Network is? We're like, uh yeah, you know, like you're kind of aware of that. It's on at 3 a.m. Like people are watching that and ordering like knives that cut through whatever bank safes. And um, and so he said, maybe we could add you guys with an attached product to one of our products we're selling. And I should back up and tell you that Threat Track is a company that owns another brand called a Viper Security, which is an antivirus product. So anyway, long story short, we ended up getting into this deal with them where they were going to sell product on home shopping network. And then as an add on, it'd be like, and it comes free with track off. And, you know, they would give us, I'm not going to give the exact economics of the deal, but it was not a lot of money per unit sold. Well, what you don't know is home shopping network, they move a ton of volume of, of sale. I mean, it's really remarkable how the home shopping network works. I could do a whole separate episode with you guys about it. Cause it's so impressive, but we went down to Clearwater, Florida, where home shopping network is based. And we sat there in the green room during the airing. There's a stage, there's a host who talks about the products and he's talking about track off. He's saying, you know, track off keeps you private online. This is how online tracking works. This is what happens. These are the consequences if your information gets out in the world. And they have pretty sophisticated analytics at Home Shopping Network. And they could see every time the host was talking about our product, more so than the primary product, sales were spiking, meaning people were coming to the website or calling in. And the producer pulled me aside out of the green room at like, it was like 4 a.m. at that point. And he said, look, you guys have something here. Do you want to do a separate deal with us? So we got a one-to-one deal with Home Shopping Network as like a two-year startup, which is unheard of, and started doing, you know, monthly, quarterly airings. And that really floated us to a point 
both financially, but also from a credibility standpoint where we could get into a meeting with Best Buy and then flew out to Minneapolis, we ended up getting a deal with, with Best Buy. And that kind of, I know it seems very strange to, to say that in this day and age, but you know, those things matter when you're building legitimacy to get into a BD discussion with another company to say, hey, we're in Best Buy, hey, we're on Home Shopping Network, this is the volume we have, et cetera, et cetera. And all those moments led us through different BD deals up to that point that I just described to you about going to meet with Apple. The more that I've met with other founders having gone through this experience, the more I hear stories like this, you know, with people are being truthful. There's a lot of people who kind of, you know, draw the bullseye around the arrow once it's, it's been thrown. And you guys also talk to a lot of current CEOs who can't, you know, the things that I'm saying now, you probably wouldn't speak this way if you hadn't exited because you don't, not that it's, it's not embarrassing at all. It's just a little, you know, it's how the sausage is made, right? It's what it is. Um, but I hear all the time from founders like over drinks, you know, oh, you'll never believe this, but we couldn't get a deal for two years. And then, you know, I ran a guy over my car and I was the first customer. Like, so that's, those types of stories I hear all the time where you're going, this can't be true. And it is. It's just you put yourself out there over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's not rocket science until, you know, either either you fail or you get a break. That's just kind of the way that it goes. I think for particularly for first-time founders, I should qualify that. You know, if you really truly are just getting into this and not kind of knowing what you're getting into and learning as you go, there's so much timing and luck that goes into that. I think a lot about this when I listen to um the the How I Built This podcast. You guys know that one with Guy Raz. Not as good as this podcast, I should say. But uh, he asked the founders a lot, a question at the end, he'll say, you know, what percentage of your success do you think is luck versus your own, um, you know, perseverance and intelligence and talent. And you can tell immediately who's a sociopath or not. Cause some of the guys are like yeah, 80% me. And you're, you know, and then the, most of the normal people will say it was 20% me, 80% luck. Um, and it's, it, those types of stories are just emblematic of the fact that, there is so much luck that goes into it and timing that goes into it. I think um, people would be amazed because it's easy to say that, but it truly is the case, particularly the more you talk to founders that, that that's the way that it works in reality. What was the exit like? Tell us that story. How did it come about? How was it initiative? What were the, the emotions? We, we here again, we were very lucky. We were very lucky because we had, we got an acquisition offer, I want to say, 18 months into the business, maybe even sooner than that. Um, and it was at a time when we were really struggling. You know, we really hadn't, maybe it was, I think, it was a little over a year in, I would say, I think, is when it came. Um, and it was at a time where we really hadn't hit product market fit in terms of revenue. Like, we weren't we weren't making enough money, didn't have the run rate to go, this is working out. And there were days I think we were really starting to doubt ourselves. Uh, and this was before we had that segment run that I talked to you guys about earlier um, and really started to getting critical mass of paying customers. And kind of out of the blue, we got an acquisition offer, and which was again, very validating for us because we thought, aha, we're on the right track here for getting acquisition offers this soon into the, the game. But we went through, during that process, we went all the way through due diligence. And we had one of those moments at the end of due diligence, we had a term sheet and it was very attractive. You know, it was, you know, the, the sticker price was millions of dollars. Um, and we just, 
it didn't feel right. You know, there's something about it that didn't feel right. And we knew that there is more there, there. And so going through that experience early on was really helpful for us because it made it easier to say no along the way to other acquisition offers or to kind of know, at least have a sense of what it would be like in terms of, you know, most people probably don't understand is that, well, you guys do, but I, I've never had a sense of this until it happened to us. When you're going through an acquisition, that's all you're doing. You know, the, the only thing you're doing during an acquisition is working on the acquisition. All business stops. I mean, you can kind of pretend that it doesn't, but your, your whole mind share is devoted to acquisition. It's incredibly distracting. Um, and so we learned that very early when we went through the first phase. And then we had two or three other acquisition offers along the way until we did the acquisition with, with Avast. But the story with them is, you know, they became our biggest BD partner. And, you know, when you have a partnership like that, where you really have uh, a symbiotic relationship and, and you're working really hard towards a goal and they're working hard towards a goal, you get to be very close with the team there. So we really kind of started to feel as if almost we were an extension of their team in certain ways. Um, but there's danger there too. So, you know, the rule is that I was taught, you never want to have account risk, um, over 10%. I mean, you don't have revenue concentration over 10% of your revenue coming from one source. And we were way over that line with Avast. And that haunted me all the time, which is, you know, we were constantly having to diversify, think about new BD deals. Um, but as we got more and more into that relationship, more of our time started being taken up by Avast and, and most of our revenue started coming from them. Um, but we went to raise a second round of financing. I'm kind of fast forwarding the story. And they had given us an acquisition offer once earlier. We turned it down. We're going into our second round of financing, uh, which was our series A. We'd only raised a series seed of about a million dollars um, to about two years into the business. So we really hadn't raised much money and we're quite profitable business. But we went to raise another round about four and a half years in. And we told them we had a term sheet and this is what we're going to do. We asked them if they wanted to be a strategic and they said, you know, why don't we try again with the, with the acquisition terms? And I remember, I wish this was a better story, but my co-founder and I were sitting at a bar in Oakland, California. And we kind of had this offer from Avast and we had the term sheet. We were weighing our options. We've been looking at office space back in Baltimore. Uh, and we were thinking about growth, what the plan is going to be. And I, I'm not ashamed to say, I, I just turned to him and I said, I'm really tired, man. Like, and he's like, oh yeah, well, we can just go back and go to sleep. You know, you know, I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like I'm tired. I, you know, we've been on this treadmill four and a half years and I think, you know, Avastas would be a great home for us. We like the people there. It's really interesting work, you know, I, and the biggest concern that I have is just, you know, what, what about the team? Um, what about the team we have and, you know, how are they going to react to this? And it's because it's such a, a sea change to go from, talking to the troops saying, Hey, this is what the mission is. This is where we're going. And then to come back and say, Hey, by the way, we're, we're going to get acquired. You know, you feel kind of like a phony doing that, but we actually, we took a vote. We got back and we took a vote in the exec meeting. You know, Hey, we have this offer. Look, we're really considering this acquisition. It seems like a good time. We kind of hit a, a local maximum in terms of growth, you know, but we really feel bad, you know, what do you guys think? And it was like unanimous. Yeah, let's do it. So, so, and so it made it a lot easier for us to exit. Um, and 
we had there's 40 people worldwide and 26 in Baltimore. So a pretty good size team at that point. Um, but very, you know, very close. You know, I think when you bootstrap like that and you stay so lean for that long, you get very, very close to, to a team like that. And we were, it was a, a very close to people and still very close to a group of people. I was just, um, I was just visiting actually last weekend with our VP of operations, Shrod Davis, who's now the chief of staff of pro tennis um, with Nick. You guys are definitely, he's got a great, interesting story to tell as well. But, but anyway, so we're all still close and it was a great experience, but if you have questions, I don't know where, how I got to this uh, letter about the acquisition that are more helpful. You think to, to listeners that I can answer. Yeah, I've got, I've got one and you can take this wherever, but um, what was it like working with those seed round investors throughout the acquisition process? We were very diligent. I, I think probably as a function of the fact that I was an attorney and my co-founder Ryan is, is a very organized person. We have a great accountant that we work with. We always had a pretty polished data room. You know, in our minds, it wasn't. Um, but anytime we had discussions with folks that had to get access to it, they're always pretty amazed that we had things so well organized and cleaned up. So I think for most startups, what I've heard the horror stories is, you know, trying to assemble all of the materials that go into an acquisition. It's just, it's a time suck. It takes up all of your time and it's going to be documents that you should have kept, you threw away. It's going to be things that have left your possession. You have to track down you, all the things that you, you you look at and you go, gosh, I can't believe we didn't have this or, or have that. You know, we were fortunate we did have those things. And so it wasn't that big of a challenge for us. Um, but that's what I hear from other from other startups. The, in terms of what the hardest part is, I mean, look, you, you're making these decisions in a pressure cooker because whether you have real timelines or the artificial timelines set by the acquirer, there, there's always some strategic benefit or my understanding is there's always some strategic benefit to, to turning on the timer because you don't want to have each party waste time. So you're under this constraints. And if you ever talk to M&A attorneys, you know, you can see from the wrinkles on their face, they've gone through this a lot. It, it's uh, 16 hours a day going back and forth negotiating terms. There's negotiations going on between you, the acquirer with your attorneys going back and confirming things that you have to confirm with your investors and, and trying to triangulate all those things in a way that um, takes into account people's egos, people's financial motivations. You know, some of the investors you work with, particularly at a stage we're at, a seed round, for some people, it's not even about the money at that point. You know, th- they want to have certain things attached to a deal that are beneficial for them as they're promoting themselves as an investor. You know, there's, you have to look at these, you have to really turn the cube in ways you wouldn't imagine going into this. You think superficially, oh, it's just everyone has to get paid out, but they need to get paid out. We got to button the deal up in a way that's fair for everyone. But there's, there's even more that goes into it. And it, it really becomes, um, it becomes a, a very large, complicated chess game. Um, and by the end of it, at some point, you know, people get into, you start getting into, what I think Jack Welch is called deal heat, where the you know, things are spinning around, the fur is flying and you're going like, okay, we're making these decisions. 
and with such haste that are so consequential, um, are we doing the right thing? And you have to really stop yourself, try to slow time down. Like, okay, concentrate on these deal terms because it affects all these different people and this is important, but you're still going under the gun so quickly um, that that makes it challenging. So I, long story short is you ask, what's the hardest thing? I think the, the, the time pressure that everyone is under to do these things makes it a lot more challenging. If you had two years to do the deal, obviously it wouldn't be that big of an issue, but that's not the way that it works in practice. Yeah. Yeah. So you get acquired um, what, and you uh, move into a new role uh, with the acquiring company. So um, what is life like on the other side? I've, I've really enjoyed it. You know, I've heard, I've heard horror stories from other founders. Um, you go into a, a larger corporation and all of a sudden it's harder to see the data impact of your work. It's less meaningful work, et cetera. And you want to get back into the driver's seat as quickly as you can. I, this is the largest corporation I've ever worked for. This is the first corporate job I've ever had. So I, I feel fortunate that I'm still everyday learning when I go to work. You know, I, I've never worked at a company that has an M&A team and a marketing team and a design team. It, it, all of this has been new to me over the past year and a half. So I'm very much enjoying it. It is true. It's harder to see the day the impact of your work, but there's also a lot to be said for sometimes when we work on a project at Avast now, and I'll think about how challenging it would have been to do at a, at a startup, you know, because of the resources you can bring to bear, you can just do things at a different scale and with a different size team that are unimaginable at a startup. And that's very exciting. And I will say that Avast, and I'm not just being a company man here, they have an incredibly talented group of people who work there who are very, who are very passionate about what they're doing. I think because we're at a stage where we kind of just got to be a, we're growing into a larger company. Now we just IPO the past two years. Um, so it doesn't really have that kind of sterile corporate feel at all. And I'm still getting to work on the things that I really enjoy around privacy. So I, you know, I'm a, I'm a lucky guy. I, I really am enjoying it. And I'm, I have not once ever since we were exited thought we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so I think that's pretty rare as well. Did not ever had any second thought. So looking looking back on this this uh, multi year journey, what's what's one piece of advice you would give to other entrepreneurs who are thinking about starting companies or in the grind right now? Whenever I had uh, meaningful decisions to make, the first thing I would do is I would call one or several of people on our board of advisors. And I think the number one piece of advice that I could give people just getting into this is you've got to surround yourself with a, a great team of advisors. And the question is always comes back is, well, how the hell do I do that? You know, and I think it's a very good question. And what I would recommend is this, if you're a small startup, small to mid-sized startup, don't try to look to, retired CEOs or current CTOs, forget about the C-suite is my advice. Go one or two layers down from there. You need an SVP or a VP. Find someone that's in kind of the twilight of their career is even better because they are at a point where they really want to be somewhat altruistic and give back and share some learnings that they've had from their career, even if they never made it to, to the C-suite. Uh, they know as much or more in some cases as those people do. And they're you'll be amazed how happy they are to help you if you'll just call them. And then if you say, oh, I can't just 
call this person out of the blue, then I would say you're probably not the best person to be running a startup. And so that is what we do. I mean, very early on, we surround ourselves with a great team of advisors, just kind of calling people out of blue. Hey, this is your background. We think you'd be helpful. And then you give them a, a little bit of equity. You know, there's, there's templates for this, you know, coolly the law firm has these templates. It's not very hard to get the documentation papered up. Um, so that would be, that's probably the number one piece of advice that I, that I would give. Uh, so one question we always like to ask uh, the founders we have on the show, uh, what uh, book or podcast are you uh, reading or listening to right now? It doesn't have to be related to business, but it frequently is, but just curious. Right now I'm reading a book called It Was All Alive, which is by a Republican strategist about the history of the Republican Party, but I don't want to be political here. I'm not a very political person. Yeah. Um, I'll, here's a fun one, though. I just read a book because I really wanted to not read a book about business. I've been reading a lot of World War II literature. I read a book called The Elephant Whisperer, and it's about a guy in South Africa who started a, a reserve and inherited a herd of elephants. And it's about his interactions with elephants and how intelligent they are. I mean, there's some things in there that they talk about, about the way that these humans interact with elephants. It really makes you kind of curious about the world in terms of the perception of elephants and the ways that they're able to communicate and how intelligent they are. It's, it's a really fascinating read and totally outside of the usual discipline that I would read about. So I highly recommend the elephant whisperer. Um, but book that helped me look, we, when we started the company, I read a book called, I mean, it wasn't like offshoring for dummies, but it was similar to that. It was like a book about outsourcing software. If it comes to me, I'll let you know if you want to put it like in the notes, but I read this book about all of the factors that go into how you pick an offshore development firm, you know, how people have been burned, how to avoid getting burned. And I just called the author up after I read it. You know, I got his email, sent him an email, you know, just showering him with praise. And he gave me his phone number. I called him and I just said, you know, do you have some firms you recommend? And of course this guy had, you know, a consulting firm he'd set up um, to do just that. But he introduced us to like 10 different, offshore near shore firms. And that's how we got the first team to help build the MVP for, of our product. So that's a good, that's a good book story from our startup too. Yeah. Uh, Chandler, this was a, a really awesome, awesome time. Thank you so much for sharing the story. Yeah. I had a blast guys. And I look, I, I shouldn't leave without saying that I really am excited about what you're doing. We need to have more of this in the DMV area. So, um, one of your biggest fans, if not your biggest fan, so keep it going, and I'm happy to come back whenever you want. Appreciate that, Chandler. If if you talk that kind of praise, we'll have you back every week. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you guys are easy. That was just a very light bouquet. I can make it heavier. Chandler Givens, our first exited entrepreneur. And hopefully not the last. Someday we'll have an entrepreneur on the show who exited and then went out and painted the town red with champagne and limos and, and all that good stuff. Kind of like the uh, professional hockey player celebrating with the Stanley Cup. No, I, um, I don't know. Physical. <laughs> Maybe it's throwing cash in the air or something, but we'll, we'll ask the next one. <laughs> you know, we forgot. We didn't talk to Chandler about how he, he drank from, from the contract, the rolled up contract. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm done. Thanks to Chandler and his team at Avast. You can check out their work on avast.com under the privacy section. We normally share social media contact info, but he's private. 
Our episode was edited by our resident mix master, Mike. Our music is by Reactor Productions, and our logo is by Priya Runashalam. You can follow us on Twitter at extreme underscore pod. As always, embrace the uncertainty. Thanks for listening.